Welcome to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio, where we explore pathways to health for self, society, and the planet. We are home to a range of voices, as there is no single roadmap for meeting the challenges of our times. Tune in each week to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Now, here's your host. Welcome, everyone. I'm Annie Levin, and this is Precipice, a show that aspires to stand at the edge, the edge of what we know, what we understand, what's familiar or comfortable, to see what conversations emerge from there. We invite guests willing to explore that terrain with us. They may be expert in certain things, but none of us are expert in navigating this troubled time. So we will be wondering out loud together. It is my great pleasure today to welcome Scott Morris. Scott is a complimentary currencies expert and the founder of Ithacash, a new currency system utilized in and around Tompkins County, New York. Ithaca dollars are a digital currency valued one for one with the U.S. dollar. They're accepted as all or part of the totals due for goods and services on offer by businesses and others. They are used to reward shopping locally provide grant support to causes, and make credit available for micro and community-based enterprises. In addition to his work with Ithacash, Scott works in the emerging cryptocurrency space with Bancor and others, and based on his work with the Amsterdam-based Agency for Community Currencies, or COIN, he founded AmeriCoin, a sister organization offering consulting and implementation assistance to existing community currencies, grassroots organizations, local business networks, and others seeking to create and deploy designer or targeted currency programs for social, environmental, and commercial purposes. Scott, welcome to Precipice. Thank you for having me, Annie. Yeah. Well, so we're going to be talking about complementary and community currencies. Uh, But in order to work in that space, you really have to get in and understand how money works in a way that most people, I think, never have to. Um, most of us are we're very involved in the money system by virtue of, of living in this culture at this time. But I think many of us, I can include myself, for most of our lives, don't actually take that much time to look at the system itself. It's just this this thing that is assumed. And I'm curious about your thoughts on what are what the characteristics are of the dominant money system that are problematic in such a way that a complementary or, or community system starts to make sense? Sure, yeah. It's really an important question. Um, and I was very fortunate in a way to uh, be introduced to this material uh, even ahead of the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008. Um, but as that uh, fallout really started to take its toll uh, right around the time I was graduating college, uh, I realized that some of these concepts were something I needed to grapple with uh, much more deeply. Um, basically, the monetary system that we have today uh, was created after World War II at the Bretton Monetary Woods uh, or Bretton Woods Monetary Conference. Uh, in 1944 and 1945. It was there that uh, the American delegation uh, advocated the gold-backed U.S. dollar proposal, 
um, and others put forward proposals, uh, such as Keynes's Bancor proposal, um, for how to configure uh, the settings on our international financial system, uh, which includes the banking system, which includes the monetary system. Um, and when Nixon cut the link to gold, um, which, you know, again, was what backed the dollar and everything was linked to the dollar, uh, it really changed the fundamental nature of that system. And we have yet to really address that uh, from a, a policy perspective. And what it has led to uh, in today's experience is this uh, unprecedented uh, concentration of wealth. Uh, the way that the money system operates today is not too dissimilar from the way the game Monopoly works. And as anybody who has played and lost the game Monopoly can tell you uh, that's a very unpleasant experience for the majority of the players. Uh, it's that time where the uh, the winner is already clear, but the game yet continues, where one person has all the money and most of the property, and the rest of us are barely scraping by to get around the board. Um, so these complementary currency systems can kind of be likened to another board game. We decide to play at the same time. Uh, it's not that... Uh, you know, some people use the term alternative currency. It's not that we're looking to replace national currencies, but we are looking to come in and fill the gaps and make sure that people can get even their basic needs met uh, as we grapple uh, with you know the the, the later phases of uh, of this form of capitalism. Mm. So, so you mentioned that th these currencies are meant to complement rather than replace. And so I'm curious to know, maybe let's talk a little bit about Ithacash and, and maybe other examples of, of complementary currencies. How did how, how did Ithacash begin? Let's maybe start there. What's the origin sure. story of, of that organization? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Ithaca, New York, where I live, is uh, famous for a number of reasons. I'd like to say Ithaca's gorgeous. Uh, it's also home to Cornell <laughs> University. Um, but we have uh, a number of gorges and a good number of waterfalls all around. It's a very beautiful place. I hope you come and see it sometime. Uh, but it's also famous for having one of the earliest local currencies, um, well, I should say modern local currencies in the United States. Uh, so the Ithaca Hours were created here in 1991, and uh, they were created initially as a time currency, as the name implies, um, but eventually the, the decision was made to also include goods in the system, and so they assigned a dollar parity, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, those uh, units, the hours, circulated in the community, uh, helping people meet their needs uh, and you know, generating millions of dollars worth of economic activity, and these days you can find references to them um, all across the, uh, the web where people start talking about these things, uh, but also in macroeconomics textbooks. Um, so it is quite a well-known case. Um, and I heard that the system here uh, had fallen into disuse in 2012, and they wanted to have a digital currency and to revitalize the business network. Um, this was shortly after I had uh, concluded a second pilot of a social currency uh, in Iowa, and uh, I was fascinated with the idea of new kinds of money and using phones to pay for things. So I knew that was, you know, my job. Um, so I moved to Ithaca and started consulting with the Ithaca Hours board about how to move forward. 
um, at the time, uh, the EU had funded um, through the Interreg program the development of a framework for doing uh, system design for complementary currencies, uh, which is a very valuable uh, tool in this in this whole world. Uh, so I was able to use that framework uh, in one of the first deployments here uh, with Ithaca and formulated a proposal around, uh, you know, today what we call Ithacash and the Ithaca dollar. Um, and I put that forward to the, the hours board and uh, there was kind of a political shift that occurred at the same time, and it was clear that I should just kind of strike out independently. And so I began at the cash as a kind of a fresh start under a, a benefit corporation here in New York State. So the the mission for the cash was very simple, and it was really to uh, mainly keep local currency alive in Ithaca, uh, which is no small order, um, but also to provide some. Uh, key corrections to some of the mistakes, for lack of a better term, that were made here. Uh, that isn't to say that there's any lack of respect for the people who did this uh, incredible system and all of the results that they got, but just as someone who also plays a role in bringing together the community of practitioners in this space, it's important for us to be able to recognize uh, where mistakes were made and then how to correct those. So first, um, Really what led to its eventual decline was that there wasn't a viable business model. There wasn't a way to pay for a networker to make things happen and, and really help the businesses and the other kinds of things that are required. I mean, operationally, what you're talking about when it comes to running a complementary currency is something like running a chamber of commerce plus a credit union, right? So it's not a small amount of labor that goes into making these things possible because uh, you have to build a business network and support it with technology and meet with a whole host of uh, tax and regulatory requirements um, and you know have a marketing apparatus and the whole thing and run regular business. Um, the other thing was that they called the currency an hour, but they created this dollar parity of $10 to one hour. And um, that just made things confusing, basically. Uh, you know, so so the way that it worked before is someone would do an hour of work of some kind, like I'm going to mow this person's lawn or I'm going to do work organizing books at the library, and they would receive one Ithaca hour for that. And at some point, it started to have a, a value, a dollar parity, $10 attached to it? Correct. Yeah, that's right. And there are, really, they're just trying to do too many things at one time, which it does happen. In, in this kind of space. Um, but there are great case examples of time-based currencies in the world uh, that are very effective and just are clean and very effective in their simplicity. Um, and there are uh, complementary currencies like the cash and the Ithaca dollars that are one-to-one -one with their national currency. And they're effective in generating uh, more commerce on that basis. Uh, but trying to do both at once is not such a great idea. It just confuses things for the user. Um, so the last thing that really uh, created a, a, a challenge for the hours is that they were a paper-only currency in a time when uh, our, our payment habits uh, were rapidly changing. We went from being a cash-based society to checks and credit cards and debit cards, and now even mobile payments. So, um, it, it, and it wasn't really feasible for them to track alongside those things and be able to use the same innovations just because the, the cost of, of 
supporting that or even entering into that space was way, way too high. But now, uh, through uh, open source software and uh, other kinds of platforms that are re- readily available on the internet, uh, the, the cost of starting a, a digital currency are actually very low. Uh, it's very pretty cost effective, relatively speaking. I mean, just you're going to have to spend at least a few thousand dollars, if not tens of thousands of dollars, to print a physical currency. Uh, so, you know, just setting up a platform online is a lot more cost effective by comparison. Mm-hmm. So, so help me understand a little bit how a complementary currency like Ithacash would work. So if I go into a business, if Ithacash is up and running, um, I might be able to pay for the goods in that business either using U.S. dollars or using Ithaca dollars? That's right, yeah. And most of these currencies focus on what we call spare capacity. All right, So you learn how to... You know, the, the way that we view uh, economic performance uh, is mostly retrospective, right? We look at how many sales I made today, and you look at the positive dollar amount of the cash in the drawer, uh, and that's that's success. Um, we lose sight of the potential that is in the economy, and that is something that the barter and trade industry, which also operates on complementary currencies, by the way, uh, really focuses on. We look at that potential, those extra sales that businesses could be making. Um, so let, let's say that you're a massage therapist and you're open 40 hours a week, but you only book 30. All right. So you've got 10 hours, 25% of your potential that is being wasted. You can't sell a, uh, a, a massage se- session last week. Right. You can only make the sale this week and you either get revenue or you don't. And so complementary currencies target that spare capacity more often than not. Um, and, and that way they kind of help spur growth and generate a more loyal uh, customer base for the businesses that participate in the networks. And so over time, what, what potentially happens to a community where a complementary currency is functioning as opposed to a community that doesn't have one? That's a great question. Um, And this is one of the things that goes back to your earlier question about the main money system. Um, And it's really a relatively unappreciated aspect of complementary currencies, but this is my my primary driver for working in this space, is that uh, complementary currencies act as a fail-safe. Okay, they act as a plan B when you're normal economy stops functioning, right? And I mean, whether we're talking about uh, a significant crash event, like what happened in 2007 and 2008, or whether you're talking about uh, something more extreme, like, you know, Venezuela, right, where people are actively going hungry. Uh, Most people don't appreciate uh, how the infrastructure of our economy, uh, how much of that we really take for granted. So if you know, the, the, the trucks that deliver food into your community stop arriving. You've got about three days worth of food on the shelves in the supermarket, that sort of thing. And having a complementary currency means that if you have an economic emergency, I mean a serious emergency, and your financial system goes down, as by the way, there are plenty of case examples uh, where this has happened throughout history, right? Uh, then you have a network of trust uh, that is that is you know co-located in a specific region 
uh, where goods and services can still be exchanged through a medium of exchange um, that can operate even while uh, things get sorted out on the national and global level. And so that that's kind of the extreme use case, right? Um, but it's really crucial when we're uh, looking at another collapse event, right? Uh, plenty of economists have forecast that we're due for another bubble. Um, the, the thing that we can observe is that these bubbles get worse as time goes on. Uh, they are in many ways a feature, not a bug, of the system that we live in. Um, and I, I care very much about regular people, Main Street people, who have nothing to do with the financial and speculative economy, uh, who are just trying to get by on a day-to-day -day basis and take care of their families. And they're the ones who get hurt most by these kinds of collapse events. And complementary currencies can really come to their aid uh, in those moments of real need. Mm. I'm curious about, uh, so you were talking about collapse events. And in 2007, 2008, there was a, an enormous crash in this in the U.S. economy. And for a little while, it looked like potentially a big conversation was going to happen. And here, I'm going to read a quote, actually, from um, a book uh by David Graeber called Debt the First 5,000 Years. September 2008 saw the beginning of a financial crisis that almost brought the entire world economy screeching to a halt. In the wake of this, there was not only public rage and bewilderment, but the beginning of an actual public conversation about the nature of debt, of money, of the financial institutions that have come to hold the fate of nations in their grip. The reason that people were ready for such a conversation was that the story everyone had been told for the last decade or so had just been revealed to be a colossal lie. There's really no nicer way to say it. For years, everyone had been hearing of a whole host of new, ultra-sophisticated financial innovations, credit and commodity derivatives, collateralized mortgage obligation derivatives, debt swaps, and so on. The message was transparent. Leave things to the professionals. You couldn't possibly get your minds around this. Then, when the rubble had stopped bouncing, it turned out that many, if not most of them, had been nothing more than very elaborate scams. Armies and police geared up to combat the expected riots and unrest, but none materialized. Neither have any significant changes in how the system is run. At the time, everyone assumed that, the very defining, that with the very defining institutions of capitalism, Lehman Brothers, Citibank, GM, crumbling, and all claims to superior wisdom revealed to be false, we would at least restart a broader conversation about the nature of debt and credit institutions, and not just a conversation. But those in charge of moderating debate in the media and legislatures decided that this was not the time. The U.S. government effectively put a $3 trillion band-aid over the problems and changed nothing. The bankers were rescued, small-scale debtors, with a paltry few exceptions, were not. To the contrary, in the middle of the greatest economic recession since the 30s, we're already beginning to see a backlash against them, driven by financial corporations who have now turned to the same government that bailed them out to apply the full force of the law against ordinary citizens in financial trouble. Meanwhile, the conversation stopped dead, popular rage against bailouts sputtered into incoherence, and we seem to be tumbling inexorably toward the next great financial catastrophe. The only real question being just how long it will take.
what I'm wondering about is you were talking about that what you're really passionate about is is that in the event that those things happen or when they happen, that communities have some resiliency. They have some capacity to take care of themselves. And what I'm curious about is what you think makes it so hard for us to really see these things coming and and actually plan for them. Because it seems like there's a lot of putting our heads in the sand in the face of all of this. Absolutely. Yeah. Graber, Graber's absolutely spot on. And I mean, just to quickly summarize what he just said is that, uh, and this might sound funny here, okay, but people like to watch shows about zombie apocalypses. What most people don't realize is that we live in a zombie apocalypse, right? But we live in a zombie apocalypse where the banks are the zombies, all right? So, uh, and you can see this kind of cannibalistic tendency uh, as he speaks to there of them looking to the government to, uh, you know, pursue uh, people uh, who are resisting uh, their whole financial structure. Um, so some people, you know, people call this uh, different things, but, you know, predatory capitalism, uh, extractivism generally. Um, it, you, you hit on another note there, but that, it's, it's, it's really poignant about this resiliency. Because that's really what this is about. And I'll tell you, one of the first people that I was exposed to uh, when I started becoming an activist in this space more seriously was Bernard Lyotard. Uh, Bernard Lyotard is the uh, co-architect of the European Currency Unit, the ECU, which was the Euro's predecessor. All right? And most people not only have not only heard about this, or have not heard about this, but they don't realize that it was originally designed to be a complementary currency if on a higher level and a supranational level to the national currencies of Europe. All right. That makes a huge difference. So that when, you know, the Ireland's and the Greece's show up, you're not dealing with uh, the, the, the bond is only as strong as the, the, the weakest link in the chain. Right. But that this is another chain that binds us together. We have another resource, another system to, to go to uh, when one system is failing. And very seriously, lives are on the line here. People think this is some abstracted kind of thing that doesn't really have very much to do with reality, but then all of a sudden you get slapped in the face with uh, a 2008 and you realize, oh my God, you know, people can't feed their children. People are, are, are looting in neighborhoods. That, that's a serious issue, right? You, serious personal endangerment. And uh, so you start talking about these kinds of systems and you know, how they're, they're, they're by local programs on steroids, all right? And then all of a sudden, you really put them to the test in, in an emergency event. Um, so anyhow, I, I try not to focus too much on that because a lot of people can't really, uh, they don't have a framework for how to approach that. And, you know, the idea that we just printed uh, a whole bunch of money uh, and handed it to the banks and then they keep that as excess reserves and they're getting paid interest on this money that we use to bail them out kind of thing. Um, that's just, it's like, it's like too much to deal with. Um, so, you know, we like to focus on the, the positives of how this combats social isolation, 
by weaving together more beautiful social tapestries in in the community and how it delivers um, economic stimulus uh, in Main Street districts, which have been ravaged by the Walmarts and the Amazons, um, and in how they're beneficial to the environment because they provide incentives for uh, local food production and farm-to-fork programming, uh, as well as local economic uh, development uh, and supporting local entrepreneurs. So, I mean, there's really a lot to talk about here, but, I mean, it really comes down to um, these things are essential economic infrastructure systems. Um, the future that we're headed into is one where we have uh, a plurality of monetary channels to go through in order to transform the things that we have into the things that we want. And we're going to look back on how we operated today and just like, wow, that was really stupid to just rely on one type of money all the time for all things. Look at how limited we were. Look at how many, how much suffering we endured, you know, just by not being more aware of the limitations that were imposed upon us by this one system, you know, and or aren't we glad we have all these choices now in terms of different ways that we can uh, provide, be recognized for our value um, and then have our needs met. Mm-hmm. It occurs to me that what you're describing um, with the with the ECU and with with multiple with a plurality of systems is that the same realization that we're having in the natural world is showing up in the money world too, right? That 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 diversity is critical. That we're seeing it, you know, in in agriculture. That there's been so many practices that that used one type of corn, one type of tomato, you know, in, in South America, one type of banana. And we're seeing those things get decimated because nature doesn't actually do well when it's just one thing. And it sounds like that the same thing is true of a money system. Absolutely. And that's what, uh, the paper that I read by Bernard and others pointed to is they looked at, uh, ecological systems, uh, and, and sustainability and sustainability as a function of resiliency directly in opposition to efficiency. We like to think of we need to have the most efficient system. Well, the most efficient system is also the most brittle system. So when all you do is grow corn and you have something that comes through and kills corn, you starve, all right? It's important to have a a multi-cropping situation so that when those locusts come through or whatever, you're not going hungry. That's ultimately what we're talking about. It's a very excellent example. Mm-hmm. Well, I really want to talk about some examples of currencies that have shown up in different parts of the world and, and how they're working. But first, we need to take a short break. Uh, my guest today is Scott Morris, founder of Ithacash, a complimentary currency used in Tompkins County, New York. You can learn more about Scott's work at ithacash.com. That's I-T-H-A-C-A-S-H.com. And we will be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. In these times of converging crisis, the world needs us now more than ever before. 
Revolutionary Wellness Magazine is devoted to amplifying inspiring voices, facing challenging realities head on, opening up new places of power, and inviting curiosity about the paths we might take toward personal, communal, and global health. The magazine aspires to help us become the change we wish to see in the world, co-creating the more beautiful world we know to be possible. Join us on this journey. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com. Do you know that you were born to experience revolutionary wellness? Have you wondered why extraordinary physical, mental, and emotional health has eluded you? Do you know that your infinite personal power resides right here in the present moment? People all over the world are awakening to their birthright. Revolutionary Wellness. Subscribe today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com and begin your journey into the mystery. Engage with experts in topics of nourishment, wisdom, and empowerment. Develop mental clarity. Live wholeheartedly and be empowered to live an authentic life of passion and purpose. The world, now more than ever, need you to feel revolutionarily well. Explore and integrate new ways of being. Learn to access your own unique treasure, the wisdom that is right there inside you, waiting to be revealed. Experience a renewed, vivid, and nourishing relationship with yourself and the world around you. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today and experience the publication devoted to your journey toward extraordinary health and well-being. RevolutionaryWellnessMagazine.com Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Listening to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Our hosts are clinicians of mind and body medicine and lifestyle change. They are writers, activists, educators, and change agents. You can reach the show and our hosts at experiencerevolutionarywellness.com. Now, back to our show. Welcome back to Precipice. I'm Annie Levin, and my guest today is Scott Morris complementary currencies expert and founder of Ithacash and AmeriCoin, both working to make complementary currencies a reality so that money serves people and planet, not just profit. So before the break, Scott, we were talking a bit about complementary currencies and how they can serve communities, both in terms of resiliency and in terms of economic stimulus and bringing people together. And I'm wondering if you might be willing to share some examples of currencies that you know of in different parts of the world and what they're up to. Absolutely. I mean, this is, this is my world and I get so much joy by learning all of these different ways that people have uh, come up with to work together more effectively in their communities. Um, my favorite example is called Samendun. That's S-A-M-E-N-D-O-E-N, uh, which is Dutch for doing it together or doing together. And it is run by uh, my good friends at COIN, uh, the Amsterdam-based agency for community currencies, uh, who are some of the foremost uh, community currency experts in the world. Uh, they are one of the only professional agencies uh, who designed these systems, 
uh, for communities of every kind, governments, uh, enterprises, and most recently, uh, a number of cryptocurrency communities uh, who are looking at having more effective cryptocurrencies. Um, so Samadun is a what we what we call a fourth generation community currency. So there are knowable generations of these things, and they have gotten more sophisticated over time. Uh, and it's one of only a dozen or so uh, uh, of these programs that operate in kind of a hybrid way. Um, and it has four cornerstones as a part of its program. Okay, Samadun has points, okay, that are worth one euro cent, right? And people earn Samadun points by doing community service, right? By volunteering in the community with target programs. They receive them as rewards for uh, doing particular behaviors, uh, which are supported through the program's uh, sponsor institutions. Um, this is one of the reasons why this is my favorite program is because they are one of the only ones that have brought the anchor institutions in the community into the equation as one of the primary stakeholders um, and leverage that into a, a business model that can support the, the program over the long term. So there are targeted programs. Um, for instance, uh, the hospital may decide to reward people with Samadun points for working in the community garden and you know getting uh, very nutritious food into the community because that reduces uh, the healthcare costs. Just by way of an example, uh, the third way to earn points is through local shopping. So people are rewarded for keeping their money on Main Street rather than defaulting to walls to the WalMarts and the Amazons. Um, and then lastly, there is a peer-to-peer -peer, uh, marketplace platform where the, the the platform's users can come together and exchange points as a part of the sharing economy. So this is a, another way to exchange goods and services on a local-to-local -local basis um, that goes beyond what people would be able to afford uh, in euros only. Uh, so that is the, the basics of the Samadun program. Uh, it's something that I've modeled at the cash after from the very beginning, I mean, 2013, 2014. Um, and I, I continue to work with this organization uh, and not only uh, moving the model here for Ithaca forward, uh, but also in uh, consulting with cryptocurrencies uh, and how to make them uh, more meaningful in the world. Um, I would say the, my next favorite example is in the UK, and they're the SPICE time credits. Uh, so this is a true time-based currency uh, that operates like most people in the world think the Ithaca hours operated. Uh, but it's a true time-based currency, meaning that one time credit is worth one hour of of labor. Okay. So uh, similarly to Samadun, uh, the institutions in the area purchase time credits and then donate them to nonprofits, who can then use them to reward volunteers. Uh, so they, what I love about the Spice time credits is that they have one of the most effective impact assessment uh, practices that the industry has ever seen. So they set aside 10, 20% of their budget every year to have a third party come through and validate the impact that they're having in the community. And they're very uh, substantial impact. Um, many people have said that, you know, by virtue of the program, they uh, feel more connected in the community and they don't need to go to the doctor as often, for example. Um, another, uh, key statistic of theirs is that uh, they have um, 
half of the people that come in and volunteer have never volunteered before. And 80% of those are likely to continue volunteering. Um, so when you look at the value of an hour of volunteerism, at least here in the U.S., uh, that's valued typically somewhere around 20-something dollars an hour. Uh, so it's a, a really significant contribution to the economy, even when you boil it down uh, to dollars and cents, uh, which is a very narrow way to measure value, by the way, um, that you know, these kinds of programs are able to, to generate. Um, if I had to cite a third favorite case example, I really also, uh, along with Bernard Leotier, love the Curitiba uh, example where the mayor of this Brazilian city uh, saw an opportunity in linking the underutilized capacity of the municipal bus system with a crisis that they were having in the favelas and the hillside where the trash was building up to such levels that it was increasing the spread of disease. And the garbage trucks couldn't get in to collect the trash. And so what he did was he created an incentive system whereby uh, the people in the favelas could receive bus tokens in exchange for pre-sorted bags of trash. And what they found was that the children in the favelas would go and pick the hillsides clean of the garbage. And they would turn in the bags of pre-sorted garbage for the bus tokens. The parents of those children would take the bus tokens and use them to ride the bus into the city and find employment. And the, the, the program was so successful that they replicated it for uh, pulling trash out of the bay, uh, which was very polluted and was limiting their fishing capacity. Um, and they also created a similar program for uh, keeping their kids in schools. So if you kept your kid in school, then you would get like a CSA share. And the combination of those programs uh, elevated the household incomes in the, the Curitiba favelas there by something like 40% compared to other areas that didn't have the programs. So um, that that's a really excellent case example of what we like to call a social impact currency or an environmental impact currency. So, uh, what, yeah, what, they, those are the good case examples just off the top of my head. Yeah, what's what's so interesting about all of those is is the degree to which the the communities in which they're happening are using systemic thinking rather than a thinking that is sort of linear and focused on on one piece, right? Where they're they're understanding value as having multiple dimensions and they're also understanding systems as as complex where if you if you deal with the issue of trash you also potentially have this outcome of dealing with unemployment right that that right. there's so many different more creative ways to address social issues and economic issues than if we're dealing with money alone traditional that's, money yeah that's right that's right and and you know I'll tell you and our listeners that one of the most valuable assets that I've had all along the way here um, was a, uh, a kind of a, a model, right, for thinking about reality in uh, a multidimensional way, thinking about value in a multidimensional way um, called integral theory and uh, the spiral dynamics model, all right? And really it's just an acknowledgement that, you know, reality happens in knowable dimensions, right? It's, you know, but, but in a complex adaptive system, it gets very hard to track everything all at once. So it just helps us kind of categorize the types of information 
that we come into contact with and applying that to the field of economics um, gets in some really interesting territory. Uh, I was, I guess, a little over, uh, well, a little under a year ago that I did a, a master class that online that, that applied uh, kind of this integral theory and methodology to the concept of capital. And you, we ended up talking about 10 different forms of capital, um, from knowledge capital and spiritual capital uh, to you know, the traditional financial capital and production, productive capacity, uh, uh, capital to natural capital um, and others and social capital. Um, and it was, it was really, you know, really expanding um, and, and it really helped provide uh, a broader framework uh, for thinking about value generation and exchange um, and appreciation uh, than, than what we get through GDP. I mean, GDP is an absolutely awful m way of measuring wealth. I mean, you can praise it for, you know, helping us understand this and that around the world, yada, da, and that it tracks alongside all these indicators. Great, okay? But that doesn't mean that we have to stop there, all right? Why limit ourselves to the types of information that we get around something so vital as the performance of our primary systems for, for, for value generation and actually su succeeding as a species and why choose to turn a blind eye to the damage that we're doing to uh, one another through uh, poorly designed incentives in, in terms of the outcomes that are happening in society uh, where we're so focused on consumerism that we lose sight of uh, the, the value of human connection um, and of the toll that we're having on the environment, right? So we're, we're actually kind of stealing that value from future generations. Uh, so that's uh, really kind of uh, important in understanding uh, the value of uh, a pluralistic system where you have more kinds of money than just national money uh, because you start to get tuned into these other dimensions of wealth and how we're creating those together through these uh, systems of exchange. Mm -hmm. so, so the three examples you mentioned, which are all really inspiring, and I look forward to looking up all of them and learning more about them, they're all outside the U.S. And I'm wondering... I, I, my sense is that um, this is still a newer uh, frontier in the U.S. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about if, there, if there's reasons for that. Like, mm. as you were describing, for instance, as you were describing the hospital giving credits for people to work in a community garden, I, I realized it was hard for me to imagine that happening here and I and right. I'm not totally sure why and I ask this question not to just um, talk about oh it's terrible here or anything like that but really to to wonder about um, what the ecosystem is here as far as these sort of things taking hold and because yeah. I think I think a lot of our listeners are based in the US and and might be wondering about how to how to begin to think about starting such a thing where they are and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about what how how to tend the soil here in the U.S. Right. to make space for these things to really take root. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something that I've been very concerned about since the very beginning. But let's just start kind of from the beginning of your state, statement and work our way forward. It is important to understand that uh, the currencies like Ithacash, a fourth-generation complementary currency, are very new. However, 
first generation and before we started measuring them in terms of generations, uh, complementary and local currencies have existed for years and years and years and years and years back. Okay, you can literally go back millennia in history and talk about complementary currencies. It's really just a matter of how far do I need to go back in terms of uh, the context of a given conversation. But humans tend to reinvent money when they don't have it supplied on some regular basis. Right? So even back in the Great Depression, you had a number of complementary and local currencies that showed up, uh, such as the Cincinnati Time Bank and others uh, that were trying to operate to stimulate their local economies, create jobs, improve incomes, um, and support communities. Um, now, the modern generation more or less began in like the late 70s and the 80s with the modern trade and barter industry. And that was really just when we started to first have computer systems that could help track uh, these, the exchange of capacity between uh, business members and a network uh, through a system that is called mutual credit. Right in the social sphere, it's typically called mutual credit. In the barter space, it's normally referred to as what they call zero balance. Right, but the basic concept is the same: one person's balance goes up, another person's balance goes down. You add up all the positives, you take away all the negatives. You should have a zero. Very simple, right? That's a first-generation complementary currency. I would say something like Ithaca Hours was a second-generation complementary currency. And then you've had uh, a little more modern uh, things like time banks. I mean, time banks were really kind of first, second generation. Um, it, it depends on who you are as to which buckets you choose, I guess. Um, but um, there are a variety of systems that exist. Uh, most of them are kind of barter and trade networks um, that have existed for uh, a number of years, um, though I wouldn't say that they are you know, reliably in every city. Uh, they, they are out there and can be found. Um, there is an industry association called the International Reciprocal Trade Association, or IRTA.com uh, for short, right? IRTA.com for IRTA. Uh, that's where you can really find a hub of, of barter and trade-related resources. They also represent community currencies and help uh, advocate for us, but for the most part, they're focused on barter and trade. Um, there are some other local currencies. Some, uh, there were about 30 communities or so that emulated the Ithaca Hours. I would say that one or two of them are still operating. Okay? And by still operating, we're talking about a very humble definition of operating, meaning they have a directory, a list of business names online. That's probably the extent of the scope that we're talking about um, outside of a, a barter uh, trade company, which, by the way, they charge steep fees. Typically, they have. I mean, we're talking about like 18, 20% commissions on trades. That's that's a pretty steep fee by today's standards. Um, you also have time banks, okay, the, the time-based uh, exchange systems that are really just for service and typically for unskilled labor. Um, and those have really struggled uh, also for the same reason that uh, most local currencies have, that they don't have a way to really make old-fashioned money, right? And this is like one of the main frustrations of the movement uh, has been that, you know, okay, wow, you know, you break through the matrix, you find the back door, you can print your own money. That's amazing. It's such a powerful ability. And then you got to make regular money again. Like, what the heck, 
All right. So it's very frustrating in how to devise a business model that makes sense for people to come into a complementary currency networking system and then pay traditional currency at the same time has been very difficult. So this is why uh, case examples like Samadun and this, the Spice Time Credits are especially valuable to people to look at and to model after is because they're the ones who have really cracked that nut. Uh, they've really built a, an effective business model by focusing on uh, kind of proof of impact, if you will, for the currencies and the benefits that they generate uh, at the, the local and regional levels. And, and proof of impact becomes important because it draws in supporters who might otherwise be reticent? That's right. And, and I mean, you can really also, if you can prove that, you know, 45% of the people who are volunteering have never volunteered before, and you can prove that 81% of those are going to continue to give their time regularly, you can actually put a dollar value on that. Um, that, that you're not going to be able to do uh, without mm-hmm. uh, having those sort of st- statistics. So investing in the impact assessment on the front end, right? This is actually something that, that is really new in the, in the case of the movement, uh, is, is crucial. And so uh, getting the stakeholders around the table early, helping formulate a coherent uh, theory of change around how you're going to make specific interventions in the local economy that are going to generate specific outcomes and uh, translating those into dollars and cents, all right, that the bean counters who only look at that and they don't care about social capital and they don't care about saving the environment and they don't care about anything except their return on investment, right, that even those guys, blind as they are, can get behind this. That's been uh, a, a, an extreme point of difficulty. Mm-hmm. So now that we're getting to that stage where we can do that and we can deploy the systems uh, in ways that they're pretty cost effective by comparison to what you know would have taken 10, 20 years ago. Uh, now I think we're going to start to see these things proliferate, especially as they're supported by uh, crypto technologies um, that uh, can can connect these systems uh, across borders. Even you know, so I can spend, I can earn local purchasing power in one community, and I can come over there to Brooklyn and pay for my coffee in your local currency. And the, my local currency is automatically converted into your local currency, and it all happens seamlessly at the point of sale as I'm putting my thumb on my phone and I'm tapping it and I'm grabbing my coffee and I'm going. Right? That's borderline magic. Um, but how to wield these things in communities uh, so that you um, not only do the most good for the greatest number of people, but you're also um, uh, able to... Uh, create a regenerative economic framework uh, that is is going to deliver value for decades to come. That's what we're really talking about. That in terms of the the long term vision uh, for these these systems, um, we're re- we're really just starting to break into that field of knowledge. So that's that, that's where I, I what I think is most exciting. Anyway, so I have I have one last question for you, Scott, and then and then we're going to be out of time, but. What you're talking about here is such a big vision, and you're clearly so passionate about it. And um, I I know that to carry this vision in a time and place that that where it's it's not quite here yet, 
Like you can see it and there's other people who can see it. But I know that a lot of the work that you're doing on a day-to-day basis is having to carry forward this vision when other people can't necessarily see it yet. And that that requires a lot of, I'm not sure sure what exactly, but it's certainly t- trust in your in in your capacity to see it, and and it, for it to become real even when other people can't yet. And I'm wondering how over all of these years that you've been doing this work, how you have managed to do that. Honestly, Annie, thank you. Like, thank you for taking a moment to ask that. I mean, it, it's it's not something that gets asked about very frequently. Um, I ask myself that question uh, more and more often as as time goes on, and uh, uh, you know I meet challenge after challenge. Um, I, I'm firmly convinced that this is not optional. This is a mandatory shift, and the thing that drives me and keeps me on it is the understanding that I'm going to help people uh, become liberated by. Uh, from the limitations that are put onto them and of most of the suffering that exists, I think, on, on planet Earth. I mean, this is it sounds pretty ridiculous here, but it's just being in touch with that kind of global, liberational scale that keeps my fire stoked, right? Uh, because I, I believe that most of the suffering that is global poverty, that is every time that you want something and you can't afford it, right? That's all connected to 1944 and 1971, all right? And the way out of that is through diversity, through strength, through or unity, through diversity, and by creating these complementary systems that recognize value in a more dynamic way. Um, so, you know, that and a good meditation practice and... Uh, keeping in touch with all kinds of beautiful people all around the world who are doing the same thing. Uh, that's that's really what keeps me going. So thanks again for asking. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here, Scott, and for carrying forward the vision of how we can do a better job with money and executing on that vision in ways that serve people and planet. Thank you, Annie. My guest today has been Scott Morris, founder of a complementary currency currently in use in and around Ithaca, New York, and an innovator in the cryptocurrency space. You can learn more about Scott's work at ithacash.com. Next week, Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio will be back with the Nine Prisons One Key series with Susan Olesic, Type 7, the Epicure Enthusiast. Please join us for that conversation at this time, 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. It has been such a pleasure to be here with you all today. Thank you for listening in. Until next time, may we be willing to stand at the edge, unblinking, together. I'm Annie Levin, and this is Precipice. Thank you for opening your heart and mind to new ways of seeing, to greater degrees of compassion, and to pathways to health for our world with Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Join us next Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health on Voice America's Health and Wellness Channel.